first chapter of Acts, we'll be reading through verse 25. Hear now God's word. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes and from there to uh, uh, Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Uh, when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned, and, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, uh, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we, who were Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after, and after those days, we packed up and went to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain man, Manasin uh, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told them, told in details those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and how they are zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that, they, and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Well, that's a long passage of Scripture to, to follow there, but we're trying to keep our pace up as we move through the book of Acts. 
And we need to remember that the book of Acts is uh, a, a just a glorious description of our own history. These are our people. This is the church. And we are the extension of that. And it demonstrates the power of the gospel as Jesus works through his people and as they face great opposition. Everywhere the gospel goes, lives and cultures are transformed. But that doesn't come without cost. It doesn't come without opposition. It doesn't come without some hostility. The kingdom of darkness hates the kingdom of light. And this is, again, our story, a story that continues right now with the same results. You'll recall that in chapter 20, uh, that chapter ended with Paul saying farewell to the Ephesian elders that he had met with. Remember, he had been at Ephesus for three years, developed deep relationships. And we read in the, at the end of chapter 20, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. That's how chapter 20 ends. Uh, Again, Paul had come to love the Ephesians. The Ephesians had come to love him uh, very deeply. And now Paul, Luke, and some others will set sail from here to Kos and then on to the island of Rhodes. Next, they arrive at Patara, where they boarded a large merchant ship that would travel about 400 miles to Phoenicia in Syria, where they landed at Tyre, and we're told in verse 3 that that's where they unloaded the cargo of the ship. So they're going to be delayed there for a while while the cargo is being moved on and off the ship. I really like the details that Luke provides in his historical narrative. It just makes it real. He's not just hitting some kind of high points. He's connecting it to actual events. So here they are in the port. Uh, They're unloading the ship. And so now uh, Paul and his companions have some time on their hands, but Paul doesn't waste any time. And so um, uh, uh, verse 4 tells us that the first thing they did, and I think this is really insightful uh, and important for us to learn, they found disciples. They couldn't call ahead. Uh, They didn't have a cell phone. They couldn't text. They couldn't email. They show up, and the first thing they do is start asking, is there a church here? Are there Christians here? So they found disciples. And and again, this is a wise thing for any Christian traveler to do. I used to do this. I was a jeweler in another lifetime in my early 20s, and I would travel occasionally, go to other cities and do... uh, shows where we would mount jewelry and those kinds of things. So I'd be there for a couple of weeks. But the first thing I always would do was locate a group of Christians in that town uh, to protect me, to give me fellowship and accountability, and to uh, meet new Christians. It was the safe place for me to be. Um, when we're anonymous, when we're out there and nobody knows us, that's when we can get in real danger. But we see this pattern over and over. As soon as they get to town, they find the Christians who are there and associate themselves because there's safety and accountability. And so after a short seven-day visit, we have another beach farewell. Uh, At this point, everyone was thinking this was likely the last time, again, that they would ever see Paul in this life. And so walking with Paul to the beach, we have this picture. Imagine us, uh, a group of men, women, and children 
Uh, imagine, again, so much of the travel is on foot. We, we're going to meet at the church in the morning or at so-and-so's house. And then he was they, the, Paul and his companions were going to go board the ship. And so they all follow him down there to the port. And there, they again, they kneel, they bow, they pray, and they say their farewells. And so as they parted company, we're simply told in verse 6, Paul and the others that were with him, including Luke, board the ship, and the others just go back to their homes. So, again, kind of a routine thing, but a really great picture that in seven days they'd made such close friends. And often it's that way when we meet Christians for the first time and we just hit it off. We're brothers and sisters, and we have this camaraderie right away. But what we see here is that the rest of the book of Acts is going to describe a series of troubles and trials, particularly for the Apostle Paul, but no doubt the others that were with him. So Luke, Paul, and these few others travel now from Tyre to Ptolemais, where they stay with some brethren for one day, and then they head out to Caesarea. Upon arrival, they go to Philip's uh, the evangel- Philip the Evangelist, they go to his house. He was well known, uh, and, you'll re- and we're told in this text that he was one of the seven. You'll remember in Acts chapter 8, uh, seven men were selected, a debate over whether those were uh, deacons or elders, but uh, whatever. He was one of those seven spirit-filled men that was selected uh, and, and set apart by the apostles to assist them in serving the tables there early on. And so, again, we're a number of years away from that event. But you'll note that um, on the day of, uh, excuse me, uh, Luke notes that Philip had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And you'll remember that on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, he quoted uh, from the, the prophet Joel, and here's what he said. And, the, and he said Pentecost was the fulfillment of this prophecy. And it shall come to pass in the last days, and the last days has reference to the period of time, uh, this first century period of time, when the last days of the old covenant, if you will, and so the ushering in of the new covenant. It shall come to pass in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So here Philip has these four daughters who who are known for their gift of prophecy. And we should remember that at this point, there is no New Testament. So they're reliant upon new revelation from God, and so that is what's going on before we have our completed Bible. Luke tells us that they stayed here for many days, and uh, verse 10 says, a certain prophet named Agabus uh, came down from Judea. That was about 85 miles away. So it was a pretty good journey by foot. And so we first met Agabus in Acts chapter 11, verse 27, where we read this, and in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout the world, all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Again, attaching this to a real historical time and place. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So Agabus has been there. He prophesies this famine coming. And as a result, this big 
effort to collect money and relief to send back to this famine-stricken area begins. Again, a number of years before. So this set in motion the collection of funds that Paul begins, and he's now headed to Jerusalem, and part of the reason he's going to Jerusalem is to deliver those funds. So Agabus, in Old Testament fashion, presents a dramatic prophecy regarding what lies ahead for Paul. And so he takes, uh, it says, when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles, that is, the Romans. Now, this didn't sit well with those who were gathered at Philip's house, and Luke says that he, even Luke, and everyone else present pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So you got that, Agabus has prophesied, you're going to be bound, you're going to be arrested. Uh, And so everybody says, oh, don't go, don't go. But Paul responds, he says in verse 13, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? Why are you making this hard on me? I've already told you I'm going to Jerusalem. The Lord has shown me that I'm to go to Jerusalem. Remember the Lord had forbidden him uh, in the Macedonian vision uh, to go certain places. But now the Lord has shown him you're, you're going to go here and you are going to have trouble. And Paul says, um, so what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? Stop crying about this for I am not, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, Luke says, we ceased. And then we said, the will of the Lord be done. Um, Now, there are many times when we don't like what the Lord says, and many more times when we don't like what he does. Uh, We often think we know better, and we can always ask the Lord to change our circumstances, and sometimes he does, But at the end of the day, and Paul understood this, we bow to his will. We emulate our Lord Jesus Christ when he was facing the cross, right? What he said in Matthew 26, 39, and 42, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, Unless I drink it, your will be done. And you you and I should pray that way about any number of things. Lord, this is what I want. You can let the desires of your heart be known. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So I'm sure that all who knew the apostle could not imagine how the church would survive without the apostle Paul. He was too important for them to lose. But as the former president of France... Charles de Gaulle once said, the graveyards are full of indispensable people. God determines exactly how many days we have. And Paul understood that as long as God wanted him on the face of the earth, nothing could take him away. He could march into Rome where it was illegal to preach the gospel and declare the gospel. Nobody could touch him if that was God's will, and once it was God's will to take him, no one could keep him. That's what he remembered, that's what he knew, that's what he understood. And so we are all expendable 
It's a good thing to remember. It keeps you humble. We are all expendable in the kingdom. I, If I never preach again, the kingdom of God will be just fine. Arguably, it might be better off. I remember when uh, my friend Dr. Bonson died and we were doing his funeral, uh, me and another friend, and uh, someone asked, who's going to replace Dr. Bonson? And somebody very quickly said, I don't know. It may take ten people to replace him, but God can do that. God will raise up who he needs. Nobody is indispensable. Derek Thomas observed, Paul had experienced hostility and trial at almost every step of the way thus far. Apart from a brief respite in Corinth following a word from God that his safety would be guaranteed, God told him, okay, I'm going to give you a break. Um, That was in Acts 18. Paul's ministry had included imprisonments in Philippi, death threats at Damascus and Corinth, probably the port city of uh, uh, Chincheria, and uh, then beatings at Philippi, uh, which on one occasion were so violent that they had left him for dead in Lystra. Before him lay the prospect of more plots to kill him, especially given the emotional patriotism that surrounded the Jewish festivals. And there were some Jewish leaders who were eager to appease the Romans by appearing tough on anybody who disturbed the peace. And so while the disciples in Caesarea and those at Philip's house did not want Paul to go to Jerusalem, and that's understandable, right? Um, Paul was convinced that he must go because it was the will of God. And after all, how do you resist the prophetic word? Uh, It's already been declared what's going to happen. And of course, the prophecy of Agabus turned out to be accurate, as Paul will recount in Acts chapter 28, verse 17, where he says, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So off to Jerusalem. Verse 15, after those days we packed up and went to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain uh, uh, Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Again, they found the Christians, and that's where they stayed. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. John Stott sets the scene. He says, but when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, his whole career abruptly changed. He was assaulted, arrested, bound, and brought to trial. He found himself on the defensive. Following his three epic missionary journeys, Luke describes the five trials he had to endure. The first was before a Jewish crowd at the northwest corner of the temple area, uh, chapter 22-1. The second before the Supreme Jewish Council in Jerusalem, chapter 23. The third and fourth in Caesarea before Felix and Festus, who succeeded one another as the procurator of of Judea in chapters 24 and 25. And then the fifth also in Caesarea before King Herod Agrippa II. And so that's that's what... lays ahead. Um, So these five trials, including Paul's defense speeches, along with the circumstances of of his arrest, will take up six chapters of the Bible, nearly 200 verses. Luke depicts the reaction of of the gospel of two communities, and it's kind of surprising in a way. One of the Jews who were increasingly hostile 
but ironically of the Romans who were consistently friendly to it. The two themes of Jewish opposition and Roman justice are interwoven in Luke's narrative or story with the Christian apostle caught between them, the victim of the one and often the beneficiary of the other. So Luke demonstrates the interesting parallels. And by the way, I'm just thinking about this. That sometimes we, we certainly see this in our culture where we see Christians persecuted or mistreated, uh, falsely accused or whatever. And then we go to court. There's a, there's a, in other words, that's a lawful thing for us to do it is to, to either defend ourselves or to, to bring some kind of legal action. And then when we see it, when we see the Supreme Court or some other court rule in favor of us, that's a, a good example of how God will take a, the, the civil system sometimes. And, and when they are doing what they're supposed to do, that is defending the innocent and prosecuting those who are wicked, then we can rejoice in that. And God uses that, and he did in the case of Paul. Uh, Luke demonstrates the interesting parallels, too. And this is, I think, exciting to see. Uh, as, as Luke's telling this story, he's going to show the parallels that although the Jews brought accusations against Jesus and his apostle Paul, the Romans, in both cases, could find no fault in them. In the case of Jesus, Luke records a threefold statement of Pilate that, in his opinion, Jesus was innocent. To the chief priest and the crowd, he said, I find no fault in this man, in Luke chapter 23, uh, about Jesus. To the same people, after Jesus had been tried by Herod, Pilate said, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. And then when the crowd kept shouting, crucify him, then Pilate said to them the third time, why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And we see the same thing with Paul. It's not not only that Paul declared his own innocence, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended anything at all, but the judges actually are going to agree with him. Claudius Lysias, in his letter to Felix, affirmed that, quote, there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. Chapter 23, verse 29. The, uh, the procurator Festus told King Agrippa in chapter 25, I found he had done nothing deserving of death. And Agrippa, when, he, when the series of trials was over, summed it up saying this in chapter 26, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thus, three times in the case of Jesus, three times in the case of Paul, the accused was declared not guilty in a court of law. So Paul has mentioned several times that his plans were to go to Jerusalem. Acts 20, verse 16, tells us he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. And, of course, this means many Jews would be gathering together in Jerusalem, just like they had on the, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1. And Calvin suggests that his eagerness to go there was, in part, an evangelistic one. 
However, there were other objectives as well that had to do with the peace of the church. There was still tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, even after the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And so another reason Paul came to Jerusalem was to deliver the collection of funds that the Gentile churches had taken up for the churches in Jerusalem. Later in Acts, Paul uh, uh, Luke recounts Paul's words before Felix in uh, chapter 24. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings, it's interesting, it says, to my nation. It wasn't just to the church. We can imagine we do that kind of thing. There's a hurricane or a tornado, and we take up funds, and we send it to a local church who then distributes it and ministers to all the people in that community, not just the church. And so I think that's what we have going on here. The the famine had affected the entire region. Funds were being sent to the church in Jerusalem so that they could then minister wherever the needs were. So Paul was hopeful that the presentation of these gifts would help mend these tensions that had developed between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. The peace of the church, locally and broadly, is critical, and all, all divisions are not easily mended, but we must always labor to that end. The devil loves to tear apart our communion, and he loves to tear apart families and churches. And now James uh, is the, still the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and Luke tells us that in verse uh, 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and to all the elders who were present, and when he greeted them, he told them, Paul told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and they heard it and they glorified God. So Paul's giving a report to James about what all's been going on. Uh, Luke and Paul and the others were warmly received by James, but there was a significant problem that they needed to be aware of. Many of the Jewish Christians were frankly suspicious of Paul. And so we read in verse 20, And they said to him, you see, brother, this is James talking to Paul and the others, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Keep in mind that the church in Jerusalem, again, now has thousands who have believed, and the rumors that they heard about Paul's teaching were a misrepresentation of his teaching. N.T. Wright commented, Speaking for a moment as a church leader, I take great comfort in Paul's uncomfortable position. It's where we often find ourselves. Zealots to the left of us, zealous, zealots to the right of us, zealots in front of us, Volley and thunder, their absolute and undoubted truths, while those of us who have to find a way through it, through with real people who are struggling to live lives of real loyalty to the real Jesus, know but realize we simply cannot explain to such people that things are more complicated than that. Paul had not taught anyone to abandon Moses. At this point, it's been about 25 years since Saul of Tarsus had first come to Jerusalem after his experience on the road to Damascus, his encounter with Jesus. And he revealed himself to those in Jerusalem to be a believer, but some not only remained suspicious, some were even hostile toward him. Slander does damage, and Paul was eager now to demonstrate his love for the church. 
fellow believers can do a great deal of harm because sometimes believers are just ignorant and they are still sinful. So let me remind you not to believe everything you hear about others. What you've heard or read is not necessarily the truth or it's not the whole truth. And if you don't have the whole truth, you don't have the truth. Because half a truth is not true. And so here's a good rule. Unless you have firsthand knowledge of a matter, you should keep it to yourself unless you're sharing it with someone who is in a place to do something about it. We should recall that Paul had said, For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I believe one of the essential qualifications to be an elder or a pastor, or in this case an apostle, is an obvious, deep love for the church. Jesus died for the church, and so too we must take up our cross and follow him. Paul taught that the shadows of the Mosaic Covenant were no longer necessary since Christ had arrived and the ceremonial laws were always intended just to be tutors to lead us to Christ. They were always pointing to Jesus. And once Christ came and died and rose and ascended, the ceremonial aspects of the law had lost their purpose. We don't need elementary school anymore. In other words, the equity of the Mosaic ceremonial laws was now implemented and fulfilled in Christ. So we don't need to sacrifice animals. We don't need a priesthood. We don't need the temple. Why? Because we have Jesus. This is not an abandonment of Moses, but rather it is a greater application of what Moses taught. So again, there's the misunderstanding. Nevertheless, there remained what we would call a political problem in the church that needed to be addressed. So James offers a way forward which will demonstrate that Paul is not opposed to Moses. And so a proposal is made for Paul to demonstrate his Jewish credentials to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem by participating in a Nazarite vow, which is talked about in Numbers chapter 6. And so we read here, starting in verse 22, What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. So James says, Paul, we're going to have to do something. Everybody knows you're here, and we need to tell them something. Therefore, do what we tell you. We've got an idea. We have four men who have taken a vow. This will be a Nazarite vow. Take them and be purified with them. Join them, in other words, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing or they're not true, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written, he's referring to the Jerusalem council now, and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So James is clarifying. We're not saying that all the Gentiles need to do this, but we are recommending here that you do this as a show here in Jerusalem that you're not teaching people to abandon Moses. So he wants to move things in a good direction, and Paul was willing to put himself forward for the sake of peace. This was not a compromise on Paul's part, but as Chrysostom put it, it was a condescension. 
Paul wasn't willing to concede on issues of vital principle, that, for example, requiring Gentile Christians to be circumcised, but he was willing to go where no vital principle was at stake. And so he was being asked to participate in some Jewish customs, and he had previously entered into a Nazarite vow. He had also circumcised Timothy, who, whose mother and grandmother were Jewish, and there was nothing in the Nazarite vow that contradicted the gospel. It was simply a vow of thanksgiving, and Paul was certainly thankful. And this also may have been a matter of the weaker brother principle at work. You recall that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law, or the Gentiles. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. So that's what's going on here. And then N.T. Wright just commented, uh, Nelson's house was the last friendly roof under which Paul would ever stay. So it's, gonna, it's about to get bad. And that's going to take us through the rest of the book of Acts. Now I want to just conclude with a few applications, if you will, very briefly. Several lessons we should learn from what this unfolding story reveals. I'm sure there are other things here, but here's uh, here five things. We need to have and be surrounded by believers. We see that over and over. Wherever we go, we should immediately not be out here by ourselves doing our own thing. We're always part of the body. That's the place of safety. That's the place of, of accountability. And, and that is the pattern that we should follow as well. It's where we get instruction. That's, remember, that's where they hear, he hears the prophetic word. And when we gather together, we hear God's word and we're instructed Second, the commitment to do the will of God, even if it's costly to us as we trust him to work all things together for good. Whatever you're dealing with in your life, cry out to him, let your desires be made known, and always in that prayer would nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And be, be ready to receive that, even if it's not what you wanted. Um, we should all have a greater love for the peace of the church. That means sometimes we have to bite our tongues, swallow hard, Bend, uh, go the second mile. Uh, I like to say if there's a conflict between me and someone else, I should own everything I can plus 10%. Um, that's a good policy. So that involves humility and grace. Uh, and then fourth, a willingness to demonstrate that love like Paul did. He went and entered this vow. He had his head shaved. Everybody could see that. He paid the expenses of these other men, so others saw him doing that. So the Bible says there's a line between what the Pharisees did, which is clanging cymbals on street corners. Don't do that. Look how righteous I am. But then there is what the Bible says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the goal. So, we don't just do everything privately. There is a time and a place to be seen at church, to be seen lifting your hands, to be seen praying, singing, 
participating, being engaged, involved, speaking up, speaking out, stepping out, all of that. And then finally, uh, a recognition that great sacrifices have been made so that the gospel might come to us and to the world. Paul's arrest, Paul's trials, as well as all of those that are with him, and many, many, many others who've gone before us are the reason we're sitting here now. Others sacrificed. Others loved. Loved the church. They loved future generations. People they didn't even know yet. They prayed for us. And uh, I believe every one of us who are believers are sitting here because other people prayed for us. Other people talked to us about the gospel. Other people lived the gospel and oftentimes at great expense to themselves. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring and preserving your word for us that we might see the mighty works of the Father and the Son and for how you empowered the Apostle Paul and many others to advance the gospel in the face of hostile forces. We thank you, Lord, for the church, and we continue to pray for her peace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table, we recall... A couple of, or a few beautiful images that this communion table shows us. First, a father gathering his children at the table to feed them and nourish them. We come to that table as his children. He feeds us the body and blood of Christ, who is our life. Second, uh, Jesus, the perfect husband, is here renewing covenant with his bride as he continues to work in and for her, that is us, to present her spotless and without wrinkle. And so husband and wife come here in communion to be renewed in covenant. And third, we as the body of Christ remember that we are members of him and members of one another, and we are called to show him to the world. And so that's the third image as the body of Christ We not only commune with him, but we commune with each other. And so there's a lot going on here, a lot of layers of poetic instruction and imagery that we're to see. Because remember, this is where we remember. We remember what? We remember him. We remember who he is and what he's done. We remember who we are and why we're here. We're his children. We're the bride. We're the body. We need to remember all of those things. John 13, 31 through 35. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Amen. Father, we are privileged to have come into your presence once again, to be fed by you, to be spoken to by you, to be, uh, to have the Spirit move within us to convict and encourage and to help. Father, send us forth with your blessing. Use us this week in our families, in all of our relationships, that we might show forth this 
these blessings that you've given to us to be in Christ. Help us to love one another. Help us to serve one another. Help us, Lord, to be light in a dark world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name as we prepare to gather to feast, to rest, and delight in you and one another. Bless it all in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.